Next Sunday is Mother's Day. I am excited uh, that David Goff will be bringing the word next Sunday and preaching um, a, a Mother's Day message as we finish Acts here this morning. Uh, and then after that, we're going to start a, a topical series for a number of weeks um, on a topic that you may have thought about or heard about somewhat, the topic of sex and sexuality. Um, we're going to spend a number of weeks looking at what Scripture says about those things. Uh, and then we plan after that at some point to get to the Sermon on the Mount. That's where our next sort of expository series in terms of going through a portion of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, probably mid or late summer. But that's what's, that's what's coming up. This, this morning we complete the book of Acts. The, uh, some of the highest rated television shows are, are series finales. Those, those shows that come when, when the whole series has finally come to an end and answering all of the, the questions, tying up all of the outstanding storylines, sort of pulling it together in that series finale. You may have dedicated an hour a week for 20 or more weeks over a year, maybe even over several years, watching a series, coming to this point, this finish, and hoping that it'll It'll be satisfying in some way, that it'll end the story in a way that'll wrap up the loose ends and won't be some kind of massive letdown. We, we probably see more series finales in this age of binge-watching, when you can sit and watch a series over a, a shorter period of time. Um, uh, during COVID, my wife and I watched a couple of older series and, and, and had that same sort of feeling that you probably have as you're getting to the last few episodes and you're knowing the end is coming. It's kind of a, an anticipation of, I want to know how this ends, and yet I, if I like the series, I don't want it to end. I sort of want it to go on or at least come to some resolution that, that feels good. And then you finally watch that finale and there's either this tremendous sense of contentment that they answered the questions and and, and, and lived happily ever after, at least in TV terms, or there's this terrible feeling of angst that it just didn't end right. It left all sorts of questions and dilemmas. Book of Acts ends with a major storyline that is unfinished. Uh, one of the, the storylines that we've been reading about since chapter 25 has been Paul going to Rome to appeal to Caesar, to, to make his case before the emperor. Acts 25, 11, he stands before Governor Festus and, and says, I'm, I'm appealing my case to Caesar. I want to be heard in Rome. He is wanting to go to the very highest court available to him as a Roman citizen. We've talked about this. He made that appeal likely for two very good reasons, one being the alternative at that point is Festus essentially sending him back to Jerusalem to be tried before a Jewish court. And even if Festus is presiding, his knowledge of Jewish law is at best minimal. And so it's a, a, a situation, a scenario where there's, there's very likely to be injustice for Paul. And then the other reason that he appeals to Caesar is that it finally lets him chart his course to Rome. After a couple of years languishing in Caesarea under guard, he is finally able to say, we're going to Rome. You're going to have to send me there because this is what I am doing by appealing. And since chapter 19, Paul has been talking about his desire to preach in Rome. Rome in that day is, is kind of 
like New York City and Washington, D.C. all rolled into one, the, the major million-person sort of capital of the empire, the political center, the, 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 the world center at that moment, and he is longing to go there. And so as a result, we've read through these closing chapters, death-defying journey across the Mediterranean Sea and the Adriatic Sea, and then finally in Acts chapter 28, they land in Italy, and then make a trek that's, that stops along the way, generally about a five-day trek that they make up to Rome. Yet still, there's this unfinished business. If you look at the last two verses of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, this is how it ends. Paul lived there two whole years. This is in Rome at his own expense. He's under guard and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul is under house arrest. He's in rented quarters. It's the, the best case scenario for somebody who is, who, who is a prisoner still. He is freely meeting with people, allowed to meet with any who come to him and speak boldly and without hindrance about Jesus Christ. But when we, we end here, there's this question of, well, what about Caesar? What about the appeal to Caesar, the whole thing about getting to Rome, and, and, and that was his desire? We have to go on church history on that because the, the New Testament leaves us here somewhere around the year 62 or so, the, uh, the church historian Eusebius helps fill in some of the gaps from church history. It says that Paul likely did have that hearing before Emperor Nero around the year 62. Presumably, we already know his case because we've seen it before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. It is, I've, I've done nothing wrong. I'm innocent of, of any crimes in terms of Roman law. And preaching Christ, preaching Jesus as the resurrected Savior. That, that's what likely Paul would have done in that scenario. According to Eusebius, Nero found what others had found so far. Paul had broken no laws, and so he is finally set free, which seems a little un-Nero-like from what we, we know at least of him throughout history. Uh, th there is some who say that, that Nero in his earlier years, and this would, would still be toward 68 was when he was done, so this is the last half of his time, but that there was a strong influence by the philosopher Seneca who helped encourage Nero toward trying to pursue justice, trying to give leniency when it was possible, and so this was a scenario where there was nothing against Paul and there was no reason to, to, to put him to death or imprison him, and so he is set free. We know that over time, Nero continues to develop into the madman that history most often describes him as. 64 AD is the great fire of Rome. The persecution of Christians then begins in earnest at that point. They are being sent to the Colosseum. They are being burned alive. They are being killed in numerous ways, and the persecution is just ramping up dramatically. Sometime after that, Paul is recaptured, put in prison, and we are told then by Clement, who later was one of the, the leaders in the church at Rome, that Paul was put to death under Nero near the end of Nero's reign, Paul and Peter for that matter. But that's not the note on which Acts ends. We're simply left with, with Paul in custody, proclaiming Christ awaiting his chance to appear before the emperor. As one writer puts it, Acts essentially ends on a big to be continued. The reason, though, that, that Paul's story is not tied up, if you will, is because 
Luke is not writing a biography of Paul. That's really not what this is about. Even though he has been the dominant character throughout much of the last half of the book, Luke is telling his readers the ongoing story of Jesus Christ. This is, this is a message about Jesus and the ongoing building of Jesus' church. We've read the last two verses of Acts. Let me just remind you, go all the way back to the beginning of Acts. If you want to scroll back to chapter 1, and I just want to read you the first three verses of the book of Acts because it reminds us of why Luke writes this in the first place, and it makes reference to his first book, which was the Gospel of Luke. And so he says in Acts 1, verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke says, I'm, I'm writing to someone named Theophilus, someone that we know very little about, same recipient of the gospel of Luke for whom he gives this ordered history of the life of Christ. And so essentially he says, Theophilus, this is volume two. This is the ongoing story of Jesus Christ. When we left off, he had been risen from the grave and was preparing to ascend back to heaven. And so we now get to that point, that moment of ascension and beyond how Jesus is continuing to work, not present on earth in a bodily sense, but through his spirit, building his church. Jesus is still the focal point. And so with that in mind, I want to survey this last chapter of the book of Acts this morning and give you three just timeless lessons that are here that we've seen at times throughout Acts, but just something to tie it all together. God's promises stand God's power prevails, and God's proclamation invites. Beginning of Acts chapter 28, we'll read verses 1 through 6 just to get started. Acts 28, 1 through 6. After we were brought safely, this, again, the sea journey, this before they get to Rome, they, they've shipwrecked on Malta. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. We read a little beyond this actually last week into, uh, into chapter 28, but we skipped over this part. The islanders are sure that this guy must have done something awful. We know that there were prisoners on board the ship, and Paul was one of them. So there's already the understanding by those who are residents that there are Roman guards with this group, and some of them are in chains, and they are prisoners, so they've done things wrong. And here's this guy who clearly has, in their minds, been pursued by the gods of the sea, who have tried to swallow him up on numerous occasions during this journey, and, and that has failed. And so finally, justice will, will serve its course, and Paul will be killed right before their eyes. And this snake comes out, and, and, and they are convinced is, is the way of the gods to, to mete out final justice to Paul. And Paul shakes the snake off. 
and shows no ill effects and their world is turned upside down. This guy not only is not a murderer, he must be some kind of God. Luke doesn't tell us then what transpires at that moment. There's no record of Paul correcting them. We, we, we do have similar account that we read back in chapter 14. If you remember Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, after one of the, the, the healings there, there was this clamoring that said, these are gods. This must be Zeus that has come before us. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas immediately shut that down and say, no, we are just mere men just like you. We're here to preach the gospel so that you would repent and believe. Perhaps that's what happens at this point. Luke does not tell us. So Acts 28 goes on. What we read last week, then those next verses, Paul heals a number of those who are sick on the island of Malta. The people are generous in their response. They care for them. They spend about three months on Malta. So it's somewhere in February now. The sailing season is just beginning to start back up. And so the people of Malta help them with another ship that's arrived from Alexandria. They load them up with goods and they send them on their way back just a, a journey across the open sea over to uh, um, to Italy, to the coast of Italy at that point. So Acts 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putole. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he had came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. We should pause a moment and think back. Two and a half years prior to this, when Paul is taken into custody in Jerusalem and he is in a cell at night under guard, having come to Jerusalem to preach to his ethnic brethren to tell them about Jesus Christ and a mob has tried to kill him and he ends up being under guard only because the, the Romans go in and rescue him from this mob and they are holding him as some kind of troublemaker based on the Jewish response and he is at perhaps one of his lowest points in ministry. Having done what he had anticipated doing for a long time, coming to Jerusalem, coming with this, this generous gift from, from Gentile believers to the Jewish brethren back there, coming to care for them, to love them, to, to show them Christ, and then planning very much to go to Rome, and now he is in prison again. When he has tried to preach Jesus as the hope of Israel, they seethed with anger, and they wanted to kill him. And it was in that moment, that night under guard, that we read Acts 23, 11. The Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I don't think it's a coincidence that verse 15 of 28 says, On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. There was Jesus Two and a half years earlier, coming to Paul at his side in prison and saying, this is not the end of the story. This, things have not all gone off the rails here. Take courage, Paul. You will go to Rome and you will testify. There was God's promise that could not be overturned. Two and a half years. 
this incredible, dangerous journey by ship, adrift at sea, not knowing where they were, running aground on a tiny island, bitten by a deadly snake, and yet nothing can undo God's promise. In the end, Paul is able to take courage and thank God that he is in Rome, that God has kept his word and he is there safely, and in fact, will remain there for, for two whole years testifying of Jesus Christ to any who would come and listen to him. The, the closing chapters of Acts spend a lot of time following Paul, but it's not for the sake of a biography of Paul. These closing chapters are meant to be a testimony to the faithfulness of God. This is a message about how when Jesus Christ says, Paul, you will go to Rome, Jesus Christ assures that Paul will go to Rome and he will testify. The word of Jesus is true, and Luke is walking us through this to showcase God miraculously preserving Paul against all earthly odds, preserving his life and getting him to where he should be. Jesus vows that Paul will testify. There are ample opportunities for that promise to be thwarted all along the way, and yet God's promise stands. That, that idea that, that the, the promises of God stand should be ringing in our ears from the book of Acts because it is the, from beginning to end, it is just this overarching theme of God doing what he says. We could go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts and Acts 1-8 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says to his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and even Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth, to the end of the earth. When when Jesus makes that promise, when he is standing there with this little group of disciples, and he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses to the, the very ends of the earth. For those disciples in, in that room in Jerusalem, the end of the earth is somewhat akin to what over the rainbow would be for us. It's like, I, I don't know what you mean by that. I, I don't know what end of the earth means. I, I know Jerusalem. I know Judea. I know Samaria. I even know Galilee to the north. That's where many of them had come from. But beyond that, I know there's this sea out there that some of them had been on, but, but beyond that, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what the end of the earth even looks like. How much further would we really need to go? And, and, and frankly, as Jesus is saying this in their minds, and we'll see this again in Acts, in their minds, this is all about the hope of Israel. This is about the kingdom of God being established through the Jewish Messiah. And so the notion that the message of this king is going to go to, to faraway places doesn't even make sense. This is the, the Jewish territory. This is our realm. This is our place where the king will come and establish his kingdom. So, so what does that mean? Going to the remotest part of the earth. And yet Jesus promised, you'll receive power and you will go to the the farthest place your little imaginations can even conceive of. And here we are now, 30 years later, and the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone thousands of miles. There are believers in Jesus Christ all over the Roman Empire. There are Gentiles singing praises to Jesus Christ and gathering on the first day of the week to worship the risen Savior and the promise of Jesus to his disciples has never been more firm. 
that I will build this church. You will be my witnesses, and you will be empowered to proclaim this to the remotest part of the earth. God's promises stand, and his power prevails. That's the second thing. We come here to the end of Acts, and, and we have to go back and remember that Jesus, when he first entrusts this good news, is speaking to this insignificant, weak little band of disciples who, if they are to do what Jesus has just said, take the gospel to the remotest part of the earth, understand they need something, something from outside of themselves, something they don't already possess, because in, in and of themselves, they do not have it to go and do this. They need some sort of power from beyond themselves to enable this to happen. And that's exactly what Jesus promised. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall receive power through my Spirit so that as you go out as witnesses, as you still terrified because they, they know that Jesus was put to death in this place, and so still terrified about what it is they are to proclaim, that Jesus is saying, no, understand, you will be filled with power. And one of the things we see throughout the book of Acts over and over again is they spoke with what? Boldness. They spoke with power. How many times does Luke use boldness and power that they, they spoke clearly, defiantly, if you will, in the face of opposition about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the, the book ends again. If you remember verse 31, Acts 28, Paul's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here is a guy who is under house arrest being held by Roman soldiers, and he is proclaiming Christ as boldly as he ever has and without hindrance. People are still coming to hear him speak. The power that Jesus promised, the boldness that he gave his followers made it so that when they spoke and, and when they testified of him, it was the words of ordinary people given extraordinary power. As, as they testified of Jesus, he is giving power to their words so that their words are now penetrating the darkness of lost souls. They're, they're, the words that they are speaking are now being empowered to, to bring about change, to, to draw people to Christ and to be saved. That same gospel that they preached, we've seen repeatedly repelled many, but make no mistake, wherever we have seen in Acts that lost souls embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is because the power of the Holy Spirit was at work prevailing through the words of his servants. It was giving strength to his servants. It was enabling them to speak, and it was taking those words and changing lives. And God's power in and through his people still prevails Sit here on a Sunday morning when we do baptisms or talk to some young believer and share their testimony. One of the most joyous things we, we do from time to time in our home group, and I know some of you do in your home groups, is just share your testimony. Talk about how Jesus Christ saved you. And, and hear in those stories the power of God to do miraculous things and to take people who, who maybe were not even thinking about Jesus Christ to suddenly begin to consider him because something happened. God did some work. And he began drawing them to himself and shows his power. That power continues to prevail through you and I. Paul wrote it then in, in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. 1 Corinthians 2, 
He's writing about when he first came to that very pagan city. He first proclaimed Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I know you've heard all of the, the rhetorical flourish of those who speak well, and you've heard them speak about man's wisdom, and you've been in awe of, of speakers for their eloquence and their wisdom and all of the things that they say. I did not come to you in that fashion. I came to you and I proclaimed Christ and the power of Christ so that your, your faith would rest on his power. We, we need to know God's truth. We need to understand the, the gospel and be prepared to speak that good news, but we must also be convinced that it is not the eloquence of our words, it's not our, our debating skills, it's not our, our, our charming sense of persuasion that will save people. It is the power of God taking his truth proclaimed and saving people as a result. It's that truth that God's power prevails that should buoy us to keep talking about Christ and his goodness to that neighbor who's heard it before and been disinterested before in Christ. It's, it's the fact that God's power prevails that should keep us praying for the salvation of that child or that sibling or that parent, that God would save them. They've heard the truth and they've not believed, but we know that God's power still prevails, and that's why we still pray that, that God would save them. It's, it's the prevailing power of God that gives us hope to start a conversation with even the most strident opponent of Christ who's making presuppositions about God and, and life and eternity and all those things, but who might benefit from, from us just asking some questions to, to ask them, how did they come to these assumptions? What, what lies, what's their foundation? What lies beneath these assumptions? We, we, we venture into those kinds of conversations because we believe the power of God prevails. It is the prevailing power of God that helps us to speak the truth to that friend who says, yeah, I'm, I'm spiritual. I don't really know about Jesus and the gospel, but I, I'm, I, I've got this sort of spiritual sense, and it's the prevailing power of God that helps us speak truth. All right, let's read on. We left off at verse 16. Paul just arrived in Rome, greeted some of the believers. Pick up in verse 17. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we do desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. All right. So here's Paul essentially doing a modified version of what we've seen him do over and over again throughout his ministry, right? When he would travel and he would enter a new city, where would he go first when he entered that city? What was one of the first places he testified in? Go ahead. The synagogue. I heard it. Yes. The synagogue. He would go into the, the gathering place for the Jews. 
And he would say, I, I come to tell you about the hope of Israel. The same thing that the law and the prophets were pointing forward to. I have seen him alive. It is Jesus. And so he would come and preach in that synagogue. Well, here he can't go to the synagogue. He is under guard. And so he invites the, the local Jewish leaders to come to him so he can do the very same thing. He invites them to come and hear him about why he is in chains, but also why he believes in this hope of Israel that is Jesus. The fact that they hadn't heard about him, they say, we, we've had no report of you, there's been no word of evil, only speaks to both the slowness of travel and communication in that era and the fact that, that Paul has gotten to Rome before anybody from Jerusalem would have gotten there, and we know that just based on the journey we've been reading about in, in chapter 27. Paul got there probably sometime in February at one of the earliest points in the season, and nobody was going to get there before him and, and travel any quicker based on what we've read so far. And so they, they have no um, negative sort of preconceived notions about Paul at this point. But, but what is interesting is they say, we, we do want to hear from you, and we want to hear about this sect, this this teaching of yours that's part of this, this sect. So even though there is a, a body of believers already in Rome, Paul's greeted them, they've come to see him. The city and its population are, are large enough, estimated around a million or so, that the, the Jews are not entirely familiar with Christianity. They, they, they don't understand all of, of what's being taught. What they do know is negative. They viewed it as a sect, as some offshoot of, of Judaism. But they knew that everywhere that it had gone, there was opposition to Christianity. And so even if they hadn't heard specific complaints about Paul, they certainly had a, a negative preconceived notion about what it was he was preaching. Because what they were told was everywhere Christianity goes, there is hostility against it. Our Jewish brethren are opposing it in some way. All right, verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. In greater numbers, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In disagreement among themselves, they, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and now he quotes from Isaiah 6, Go to this people. And say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, Paul said, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Some were convinced, it says. There were individuals who listened and, and responded. The power of God prevails, and some come to faith in Christ. Paul is speaking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Some place their faith in him. But again, the, the majority of the Jews at this point do what the nation has done in terms of Jesus, and they reject him as the Messiah. Some hear and respond, others hear the very same powerful message, and it is as if they shut their eyes and cover their ears and say, no, we will not receive this. Their, their, their stubbornness is, is so clear, so strong, that they are content to remain in darkness with, with hearts just embittered toward Jesus. The, the division here could not be more clear. There, there were individual Jews 
who come to faith. We've seen that over and over again in Paul's ministry, but the Jewish people as, as a nation. Their Messiah comes to them, and as has been prophesied, they will not receive him. And yet, Paul says, the Gentiles will. This gospel now goes beyond you, and it continues beyond you. And many of the Gentiles will embrace Christ. It's fascinating to see this ending, that we're, we're back at the very end of this with Paul with one last encounter with Jews, essentially declaring judgment by quoting from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 to say, this is what God prophesied, that, that the Messiah would come and you would cover your eyes and your ears and you would reject him. It's fascinating to see this in light of how the book of Acts began. Because the, we often go back to Acts 1.8, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. But what precipitates that, what, what, what starts Jesus saying that is the question that the disciples ask him in the course of this teaching. Jesus, over the 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension, has been talking about the kingdom of God. In Acts 1, verse 6, when they had come together, this is, again, beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus with the disciples, and when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, and then it goes on, but you will receive power. As the church of Jesus Christ is being born, Jesus has resurrected. He is about to be ascended. They are about to go out from Jerusalem and into Judea and spread the gospel. The disciples are still very parochial in their focus. They still are having a hard time seeing anything beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea and the Jewish people. They are still confused. They believed that Jesus was their Messiah who was risen but they still were fixated on this earthly kingdom, that Jesus was coming to, to do something that would, would restore Israel. Acts 1.3 tells us that in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus spoke often to his disciples about the kingdom of God. The disciples understood that God was establishing a kingdom and Jesus was Lord, but they, they had no clue about the expanse of this kingdom. All they could see was what they expected in, in their own midst. And so the most telling word in their question in verse 6 is that verb restore. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you now reconstitute the kingdom is another way of, of, of saying the Greek word there. In, in other words, after hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom, the, their answer is, are you now going to put Israel back together We've read about the days of the 12 tribes and one nation under one king having its independence and its rule going back to King David. And you're on the throne of King David. You're in his line. So when does Israel now get its land and get to govern itself? That's, that's their focus at that point. As John Stott writes, they were still looking for a political territorial kingdom. And so when Paul spent that, that full day in Rome, and he's testifying to these Jewish leaders who, due to the dispersion, have been scattered all over the empire, 
He's telling them how Jesus is the hope of Israel, and he's taking them back through Moses and the prophets to say, see, all of this pointed to Jesus. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. He has come. He is the hope. He offers forgiveness to all who trust in him, and he is Lord over all. The gospel was never meant to be for Jews only or about just an earthly kingdom. We can see that from the the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Remember, this is is volume two, Acts, of of what Luke is writing. If you go back to volume one, the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that at the birth of Jesus Christ, when he is an infant, he is brought to the the temple in Jerusalem for presentation and for purification rites, and, and Mary and Joseph bring him there, and they meet this older, godly, righteous man named Simeon who is been told by God that he will stay alive until the day that he sees the coming of the the hope of Israel. He will see the Messiah. And here they come with Jesus and Simeon takes Jesus in his arms. And Luke 2, 29 says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon got it. Right from the get-go, even right there at the temple in Jerusalem, Simeon is saying, this is a light of salvation for all peoples. He is, he is going to, to broadcast the, the truth to the Gentiles, and he will save all peoples. At the birth of Jesus, God reveals to Simeon what later Paul preached from Moses and the prophets, that this Savior would be a Savior for all. People from every tongue and tribe and nation who put their trust in Jesus Christ, who turned from their sins and believed in him, would be saved. In Luke chapter 3, as John the Baptist is preparing the way for the public ministry of Jesus, he also quotes from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 52, when he says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This one who is coming, he will be seen by all. He's not a parochial, he's not simply a Jewish savior. He is meant to broadcast salvation to all who will believe. There's no ethnic limitation. So when we come to the end of Acts, after Paul proclaims the gospel to the Jews and they stubbornly one more time demonstrate that they will not embrace him as Messiah, he then recites Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. He recites the prophecy that answers the question of why. Why would they do this? God said they would do this. God said that they would would cover their eyes and their ears and they would refuse. That they would see the truth in front of them and yet they would turn. Paul is confirming it all the while while he is speaking of their rebellion and condemning them. But here's the thing. Here's Here's the third lesson. God's promise to stand. His power prevails. God's proclamation invites. What are we to do in light of this? If if we wrongly read Paul quoting Isaiah as some sort of fatalistic act of determination, in other words, we we see Paul and we read him quoting Isaiah, and we say, oh, there it is, There's, there's our Calvinism that we believe. God is sovereign and God declares this, and we see this only in terms of God's sovereignty and we see that somehow overruling man's responsibility, then we have missed it. If we see what God said in Isaiah and what Paul recites here in Rome as as saying, listen, 
What this ultimately means is God, God said this was going to happen, so really we have, we have no responsibility in terms of evangelism because God said it would go this way. Then we have missed what has been clear over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And, and verse 30 says it one more time. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. Paul had... had, had been put in Rome under guard. He couldn't go out to people anymore. People had to come to him. And so God, God in his grace, just kept bringing people to Paul. Jews and Gentiles, we don't see any distinction here in terms of the people that he brought. God would keep bringing people to Paul, and Paul would keep telling them about Jesus Christ. The truth of national Israel's rejection of their Messiah did not deter Paul from speaking to anyone who would listen about the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He still took every chance God gave him to breathe out Christ. He told the gospel wherever he could. We are still called to speak to all. We are still called to see in the book of Acts not just a history of first century missions, but a call to 21st century missions to believe that Jesus Christ is still calling us to go to the remotest part of earth, to go to the people who are different from us, to even in our own areas, to continue to go forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to send missionaries to places, to proclaim Christ, because we believe the Spirit will save all kinds of people. That's why Paul welcomes all. I've been reading um, Rosaria Butterfield's um, testimony book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I, I know some of you have read her writings on hospitality and then her conversion in this book. And she tells the story of being a tenured university professor who is doing research for a book on the rise of the religious right. And it is not meant to be a favorable book. She is very much anti um, Christianity at this point, and so she is in the course of doing research for this, this book uh, that, that will be her second writing, and it's very critical. That's the intent. And during the course of that, she writes an opinion piece in a local paper that this is going back a few decades to when Promise Keepers was still prominent, and she blasts Promise Keepers and, and, and what was being preached, and, and she received a, a letter from a local pastor. And it wasn't a scathing rebuke, as, as other letters were, it wasn't even a, a clear gospel presentation. It was a series of questions. Just meant to, to cause her to question the foundation of her assumptions. Well, why do you believe this? On what authority do you get this? Just to challenge her presuppositions about Jesus and the gospel. It was a pastor who was convinced that the prevailing power of God, the working of his spirit, could, could take just a, an outreach in a short letter that asked some questions, and if God so chose, he could use that. And he does. It, 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 it turns into this ongoing conversation that leads to this beautiful conversion of this woman who now is in love with Christ and who has since written books that have just blessed the church with her walk in Christ. And it is, it is just a reminder to us that God encourages us to welcome all even those who are different, even those who are strident in their opposition, even those whose lifestyle might appall us in some way, their choices are different from everything that we believe is biblical. We hold hope in Christ. We hold the truth. and We are called to proclaim it and to believe that God's power prevails and his spirit saves. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for being at the heart of all this, the, the one who has given himself on the cross, who rose again, and who has saved us. Those here who are trusting in you as Savior, we, we owe all of the praise and the thanks to you. And you have now entrusted to us this gospel witness. We, we carry on in the, the footsteps of those who have gone before us as those who have been sent to the remotest end of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would raise up from Grace Bible Church those who would go from here, those who would take your gospel to other places. Lord, we've, we've seen it in, in missions already. We've, we've seen it just in uh, over the years in, in members of the military that you have trained and equipped and, and built up and, and then sent somewhere else to some other place to be a witness for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up people from this body of believers who would respond with an open hand of, of receiving you and, and your truth and your leading, willing to follow wherever that may lead and that you would, you would send them, that you would empower them and equip them, that you would speak through their words and bring life in growing your body. Lord, we pray for, for all of us who are here. This is, this is home. Northern Virginia is home. It's Lake Ridge or Lorton or Alexandria. Lord, we, we pray that as we rub shoulders with our neighbors and our work colleagues and our fellow students at school and those who are around us, that that we would take so seriously the, the model that we've seen in Acts of people who are so captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so, so desirous of worshiping him and celebrating his greatness that we cannot help but speak of Christ. That we are urged and encouraged and challenged in situation after situation to speak of Jesus and to know that all fruit to be born, all, all seeds to be planted, all that is done, that is accomplished for your kingdom will be done by the prevailing working power of your spirit and that your spirit is just as mighty and strong as he was in century one. Lord, may we see people come to faith in Christ. We ask that you would grow Grace Bible Church through people who are who are coming to know Jesus as Savior, whether it be through contacts with LCAC or VBS this summer or in our neighborhoods or the, the school in the fall or whatever, whatever points of contact we have in our community as we strive for outreach, we pray that you would be pleased to bring to this body of believers those who are striving to know Christ, who, who may not even be striving when they come, but, but your power is prevailing. May we have the joy of, of witnessing people come to faith in Christ. Thank you for your good work in our midst. Thank you for the hope of Israel, who is the hope of your people here as we are gathered this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.